decided to begin 2020 by looking at this prayer that Jesus prayed when the disciples, as they'd been watching how they, he lived his life and they, they saw what a, you know, what a, you know, how prayer just really marked Jesus's life and the results, they were like, you know, teach us to pray. And he gives us here, not just a framework for prayer, but really gives us an overall picture of how to live. If we live this way in 2020, it's going to be a great year for us, no matter what kind of circumstances we end up having to face. So we've been working our way phrase by phrase through this prayer. It's probably been familiar to to you because Pretty much everybody has prayed these words in a church service before or maybe a 12-step group you were in or in the locker room before a ball game. It's just such a famous prayer. And the last phrase is this, Father, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, some people pray this part of the prayer. Other people don't. And when you look at the oldest manuscripts, this part of the prayer is not there in some of those oldest manuscripts. But all of the different commentators and, or commentaries and scholars I read on this prayer did talk about how, you know, this, this way of ending a prayer would have been very common in Jesus' day, this, this, this phrase here. But to me, much more important than that is there's a truth in this phrase that is huge when it comes to how do you live every day with God and for God? How do you live the very best life that you can live? And that truth is this. I am second. You, God, are first. That's what it means when we pray, Father, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. 2,000 years ago in Rome said a man who was the most powerful person in the world. And he was, he was committed to expanding his kingdom. His kingdom was larger than any kingdom that it, there had ever been before. It, it extended all the way north up to England, all the way south down to Africa, all the way east to Asia. I mean, he, he ruled over the entire known world. It was, it was his kingdom. He was the king of kings. And he was also committed to expanding and enlarging his power. He ruled during a time of power that became known as the Pax Romana, the, the, the peace of Rome. And it wasn't that people necessarily wanted to live under the rule of Rome. It's just that no army could challenge his army. It was his power that, that no, no army was a threat to him. And the other thing that he was committed to was expanding his glory. He was called Caesar Augustus, and, and people would bow down and worship him. Before he died, the rulers of the nations would worship him, and, and people worship Caesar Augustus. He could, he could anywhere, he could look and go, my kingdom, my power, my glory, and he was right. He got an ideal one day. Luke records it. Let me read chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So one day, Caesar gets this idea. He's like, I want everybody to know how large my kingdom is. And I want more money to deepen my power and to reflect my glory. So he just lifts a finger, and the entire world scrambles, everybody to their own town. This is where it starts to get really interesting. I want to read how scholar Tom Wright describes this. 
This man, this king, this absolute monarch lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple undertakes a hazardous journey all at the whim of the king. Only notice the result. A child is born in an obscure little town that Caesar has never heard of that just happens to, to be mentioned in an ancient hidden prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. I want to share that prophecy with you. It's from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where we read, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, <clears throat> out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Caesar issues a decree, and a baby named Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Which leads us to ask the question, what king is really at work here, you see? Whose will is really being done here? Whose kingdom is it, really? Caesar thought his throne was as secure as any throne could possibly be, and maybe from a human vantage point we could say that it was. But what Caesar did not understand is that the real kingdom, the kingdom of God, was laying in a manger in Bethlehem. Well, we are not all that unlike Caesar in that each of us as well have a kingdom, kind of a kingdom problem where when we look at our life we tend to say you know my life is about my kingdom and my power it's about my glory I'd, I'd like to take my family and my work and my friends and sort of just bring them all together in a way you know that that fits with me that that serves me that that's about my agenda that I'm able to be in control over and some of us are real obvious about this and we're we're bold about it Others of us, I'd say, are a little bit more sneaky about it. You know, we're a little more subtle about it. But, but all of us, we have a kingdom problem. We've all, we're all kingdom builders, or we have been before, and we still struggle with it at times. But the day will come, just like it came for Caesar Augustus, when we will learn the truth about what kingdom is ultimately in control. About who it is that lifts a finger, and the entire world just scrambles and it's turned upside down. And that person doesn't live in Rome, and they don't live in Washington, or in Hollywood, or on Wall Street. There is a kingdom at work in our world. And it may not be particularly visible. And it may not look real impressive at times. In fact, at times, we may even wonder whether or not we can trust it. But we can. We can trust it. And so Jesus teaches us here at the, that, that to live the life every day with God and for God, that this is, how, this is how it ends. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, God. When we pray and we live this part of the prayer, we're saying, God, what matters to me about this world and about my life is not about my kingdom and power and glory, but about yours, God. I submit my kingdom, my power, and my glory to you, God. Today and every day, you see. This is what we're meaning as we pray these words. How do we align our lives with this last phrase in the prayer? I want to talk about each of these words and what it really means to surrender to God's control in these ways. So first when we pray, yours is the, is the kingdom, I, I'm submitting to God's authority. 
When I say, it's your kingdom, God, I'm saying, I defer to you. I defer to your wishes. I defer to your priorities, God. I, I defer to your interests. I defer to your will, God. What you want is more important than what I want. And this is very countercultural because we, we live in a culture that really is anti-submission, don't we? In a culture that, that, that says, I'm going to call my own shots, you know? I, I'm, I'm going I'm to do my own thing. I mean, how many of you drove into, you know, got in the car and drove here this morning thinking, boy, I hope Dave just gives a, a really good, strong message on submission, you know. <laughs> so when we, when we pray this prayer, we're saying, God, I want you in the throne of my life. I don't want to reign. I want you to reign. I don't want my agenda. I want your agenda, you see. This is, this is what, we're, what we're saying. And one of my favorite examples in the Bible of, of how, to, how to live this way is the story of John the Baptist. John was the prophet that God raised up to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Jesus. He, he brought a strong message of repentance, you know, turn back to God, demonstrate that in your baptism. So at the time that Jesus really came to, uh, you know, begin his ministry, his public ministry, John was really at the height of his popularity. He was the most influential religious leader in Israel. But as, as Jesus then begins his ministry and more and more people begin to follow him, John says something that really reveals his heart. As he says these words about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. This is just another way of saying, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, Lord. Now, I don't think John said these words because he was, you know, the submissive type, you know. He was an outdoorsman, I mean. He lived in the wilderness, John the Baptist. He ate insects and, you know, wild honey. That, that's what he lived on. And he was known to get up in people's faces and confront them when they were living in disobedience to God. This is what got him uh, killed. Herod killed him because of this, <laughs> you see. So my point being that submission to God is not what somebody does because they're a weakling or they have a self-image issue. Submission to God comes from, from welcoming and recognizing that somebody else's kingdom and power and glory is more real and substantial than our own. And this is what John the Baptist came to understand. God enabled John to recognize that the kingdom of Jesus was the only kingdom that could save our world. And so another thing that John is known for is that time where Jesus came walking by and he said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Friends, in 2020, may we not underestimate sin. May we not think of sin as being, oh, just breaking some religious rules or it's the mistakes I make or it's my imperfections. Sin is what is wrong in our world. Sin is greed and it's pride and it's, it's dishonesty and it's deception and it's violence and it's exploitation and it's, it's murder and it's, and it's evil. When, when John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wasn't saying, hey, you ought to follow that guy because he can help you get your spiritual act together. No, he was saying, behold, the one appointed and empowered by the God of heaven to save all of us 
from our sins. And he knew that, that Jesus' kingdom was the only kingdom that could save our, our sin-sick world and ourselves. And so I want to ask you, have you ever really decided to submit your life to Jesus Christ? To say, Jesus, I want you to increase, I want to decrease. I accept you to be as, as my king. I want you to rule and reign over my life. Have you ever truly made that decision and commitment to Jesus? We have uh, response cards in the pockets there in the chairs that if you'd like to talk with us about, you know, how, how do I do that, Dave? What does that look like? We'd be glad to talk with you. You can fill out the, check the appropriate box there, put the card in one of the baskets by the doors that Tim mentioned. We've got those baskets. Or take the card over to the connection point. Well, I want to ask everybody here, where do, you, what, where do you need to surrender to God right now? Is there, is there still a, you know, a little area of your life that you're trying to kind of build, con construct your own kingdom, you know? Are you holding something back? Maybe there's some uh, secret sins. You say, I, I don't want to let go of those. I don't want you know, God to be you know, my king in this, these areas and rule over me. I, or maybe some grudges. I don't want to release those over to God and let his justice prevail there and forgive. I want to hold on to that, what they did to me. Or, or maybe worries, fears that you have that you've not yet really entrusted to the almighty power of King Jesus. But I think for all of us in this time of worship, it would be great if we would just submit to God and say, it's your kingdom, God, it's not mine. I want your agenda for my life, not my own. I want you to rule and reign, not me. This is what it means to pray. Father, yours is the kingdom. Then we pray yours is the power. And when we do that, we are depending on his strength. Anybody here use a little, little extra power right now in your life? I know I, I'll take some. <laughs> you know, maybe you've got a challenge at work that you're dealing with. Maybe you have somebody you care about, a child, a friend, a spouse that has a need for God's strength right now and power in, in, in uh, their life. Maybe you are carrying a burden right now. You are... You're carrying a, a weight and a worry in your life right now. We were not made to live on our own power. We were made to live on God's power. And yet it can be difficult for us to really come to a place of believing that His power is available to us every day. And so Jesus teaches us, here's how you pray, here's how you live. Father, yours is the power, and we are able to ask you for your power, for your strength in our life. I want to share a story with you from the early church where they got together and they prayed, but they had a difficult time really believing that God's power was available to them. This is in Acts 12. So King Herod, it's not the same one that tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. It's a different uh, king. But he has James, the brother of John, killed because of his message of Jesus and ministry. And then when he realizes the people were pleased by this, a lot of the religious leaders, he has Peter arrested to execute him as well. Let me read the story. After arresting him, he put Peter in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So he's got 16 guards that are, that are watching over him, guarding him there in prison. Verse 5. 
Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. So it wasn't like a little love nudge or something. This was, he struck him and said, wake up. Quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. The angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter, he doesn't believe that God's power is at work here. Even though he'd seen the resurrected Jesus, he knew he'd seen the power of God. On the day of Pentecost, as we read in Acts 2, he was there and, and the power of God there. But he believes this is just a, a dream he's having here. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. So we got Peter as an escaped convict. I mean, he would have been the object of a manhunt as soon as word got out that he was missing. He finally comes to realize, I have been rescued. I have been delivered. So he goes to this home. He knows he'd be, he'd be welcomed at. Just so happened there was a group of believers there praying for his, his uh, release. Rhoda comes to the door. When she realizes who it is, she's so excited about it, she forgets to open the door. She just runs back to where everybody is and says, hey, God has answered our prayer, you know. Meanwhile, Peter's just standing outside. Any Roman guard soldier could have walked by, recognized him. He got arrested again. Verse 15, you're out of your mind, <laughs> they tell Rhoda. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel, but Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So the people, they asked God to free Peter from prison, God rescues Peter from prison, and they're just, they're all shocked. <laughs> they, you know, they pray, they ask God, they answer their prayer, God answers their prayer, and they just, they struggle to believe it. They, they can't hardly believe it. I struggle with this myself. You know, where too often I, I, I live as if, you know, I'm dependent on only my own little power. And it's kind of embarrassing to say in front of you because I've been following Jesus for a long time now. But I'll carry something with me, something that either is very discouraging or worrisome or, you know, I feel distraught. And then it'll dawn on me. I don't have to deal with this, you know, uh, in my own power. And I'll pray, Father, yours is the power. And as I do that, I, I receive strength. That may not be as dramatic as an angel rescuing Peter from prison, but I get strength and I get encouragement and sometimes I get you know, creativity or discernment and wisdom or I get comfort and I get reassurance. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to pray. Father, yours is the power. Jesus knows that we'll struggle at times with this, so he says, 
you know, pray this way. Ask God for his strength and power. It's available to you. Now, I know that many of you, I'm so grateful for this, Tammy and I, are that you, you've been praying for our granddaughter, Mila, and our daughter, Renee, and son-in-law, Brad, in St. Louis. And so I thought, you know, this would be a time I could just share how God's been answering prayers here. And so I asked Renee if she would write something up about, about this. Let me just share uh, some of what she wrote. When I was 15 weeks, we found out we were having a girl, and the next day we were told about her giant omphalocele, this condition where, you know, that's containing her, her livers and bowels. At 20 weeks, the pediatric cardiologist said the structure of Mila's heart was not normal and could cause a lack of oxygen to the brain. Everybody continued in prayer specifically for her heart to be healed and oxygen to make it to the brain. At 24 weeks, a scan of her heart revealed changes that had occurred that relieved concerns about her heart and the flow of oxygen. Mila's first day in the NICU, her omphalocele ruptured, and I remember that because she lost over a pound just immediately when that happened. The surgeon was able to place stitches in the membrane so Mila didn't feel it. We prayed for protection over her omphalocele. It had some leaking, but it never got infected and it has been doing very well. We prayed for healthy lungs and that prayer was answered. Other answered prayers include when Mila had a fever, a blood culture did not show any signs of sickness. A blood transfusion helped Mila's oxygen levels improve. Skin is growing over her omphalocele to protect it. We prayed that God would use Mila's story to bring others to himself. We met a mom in the NICU whose daughter was born at 22 weeks and had been in the hospital for seven months. We met weekly with her and prayed for her daughter. A couple of weeks ago, this mom informed me that she had started developing a relationship with God and had been journaling to him every night. Her daughter went home this week, and she wants to attend our church and community group. In August, we met a woman new to our church who shared that she didn't know if she wanted to continue attending because she had found out some difficult news about her pregnancy and her husband was deployed in Afghanistan. I shared Mila's story and she felt more comfortable coming and knowing someone who also had a difficult pregnancy. Her and her husband since have, have joined the community group that we, are at, that we are in at church and they just got baptized. Mila's three and a half months old now. She is still on a little bit of oxygen and has a feeding tube, but Renee and Brad took her home on Friday. So she is now home. So <laughs> praise God. And we're so, thank you. We're so, so grateful to everybody for your prayers and just seeing the power and working of God through those prayers. But here's what I want to invite you to do. Ask God to show his power in the area of your greatest need right now. Would you do that? What is your greatest area of need? I invite you to just pray, Father, yours is the power. Maybe you feel like you're in kind of a prison right now, a prison maybe of guilt or regret or of temptation, and you just need to be set free. Or maybe you, you're facing a parenting challenge and you need God's strength right now, or maybe a financial challenge, and you need God's provision and power right now. Maybe you're concerned about some part of the world that desperately need God's power, and you're just interceding and praying 
for a mighty working of God. Maybe you have a friend who's facing a bleak situation and needs God's help right now. But when we pray, Father, yours is the power. We're saying, God, I am dependent upon you. I need you. And please hear this. We're also saying, I believe that you love me, that you are a good God who will use your strength and power to care for my needs and be here for me in these ways, that you are a God who answers prayers, you see. And so we pray, yours is the power. And then when we pray, Father, yours is the glory, we're, uh, we're honoring God for his greatness. This word glory means splendor, majesty, honor. We read in the Old Testament about the glory of God just filling up the temple. Jesus takes Peter and James and John up the mountain one day and he's transfigured in their presence and they see his glory. Let me read this to you. It says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light or white as, yeah, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased Listen to him, and the disciples fall down on their faces in fear as they experience the glory of Jesus. John then later writes these words about him from chapter 1, verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. When we pray, yours is the glory, we're pledging, God, I'm going to live for your glory. I want to praise and honor you in how I live my life every day. When we live these words, we're saying, Lord, I want the spotlight to be on you. Anything good that I might do, I want you to get the credit, God. I want to reflect your glory in, in, in all that I do and how I live. When we live this last phrase of the prayer, we're saying, God, what matters most to me is not my kingdom, power, or glory, but yours. And I submit my kingdom, my power, and glory over to you. My life is not my own. I am second. You, God, are first. And so we come then to one other word I want to talk about from this prayer. It's the last word in the prayer before amen. It's the word forever. We don't want to miss that word. The kingdom of God is forever. The power of God is everlasting. The glory of God is eternal. So Luke tells us that Jesus' life on earth ends the same way it began, with a decree from Caesar, crucify him. That didn't come from Caesar's lips. It came from one of his lower-level officials. But it came with Caesar's authority, with Caesar's power to protect Caesar's kingdom and glory. Every rival king must be killed. So Luke tells us that Jesus' life began where Caesar issued a decree at Bethlehem and it ended where Caesar issued a decree at Calvary. But here's the question. Whose will was really being done in both instances? Was it really Caesar at the end of the day? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, it was another king that made these decisions. That it was Jesus who chose both Bethlehem 
and Calvary. Let me read, beginning at verse 6. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, being in very nature God, chooses to be born in Bethlehem and he walks this earth lives the most glorious life anybody has ever lived and then he willingly lays down his life in obedience to the Father as a sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world but that was not the end of the story that was not the end of his kingdom that was not the end of his power That was not the end of his glory. The passage goes on, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now in our day, Jesus' name is not hallowed by, by many people. It's used by one person to curse another, or it's ignored, or it's insulted or profaned. But the day will come when the king will speak. And all of these thrones that seem so secure will come down. And how many knees will bow before him? Every knee. Let's just try to picture that, that every human being from Adam to the very end will bow in acknowledgement of the final supremacy of Jesus Christ. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. King Jesus. Let's just think about that. Every president who's ever lived, every CEO who's ever led a company, every actor that's ever won an Oscar, every billionaire that's ever made a a famous fortune, will bend their knee and bow their head before King Jesus. People that we know and we read about who sit on thrones today, whatever their belief, whether they are followers of Jesus or not, will bow their head before him. Taylor Swift will be on bended knee before him one day. And LeBron James and Simone Biles and Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg, and Ellen DeGeneres, and Dwayne Johnson, and Speaker Pelosi, and Pope Francis, and President Trump, and Coach Reed, Andy Reed, which we've all come to know and love. (laughs) Knees that did not do much bending on this earth will bend one day. Napoleon will bend his knee. Hitler will bend on that day. Joseph Stalin will bow before King Jesus on that day. Caesar Augustus, the one who sent out a decree that the whole world should be taxed, will come before Jesus who entered this world on his watch, born to humble parents in an obscure village that Caesar never would have thought of traveling through. Caesar will bow and Herod Herod, who put out the word that he was looking for this child, who gladly would have run him through with a sword and did kill many babies, 
with the hopes of killing this one. We'll find out death was no match for this king. Herod will bow before him. And Pontius Pilate, who really didn't want to do something wrong, but he also didn't really want to do something right, will find out that the day comes when you cannot wash your hands and look the other way anymore. Pontius Pilate will bend the knee. And all of the people that we read about in the Bible, Pharaoh, Goliath, Jezebel, Judas Iscariot, each one will bow their heads before the king. And there will be others. Rick Warren will bend a knee before King Jesus. Mother Teresa will bend a knee. Abraham, Ruth, Esther, Paul, and everybody that you have ever known will bow down. The person that you live next door to, the person that you sit closest to at work, the person you're sitting next to right now, your mom, your dad, your aunts, your uncles, your siblings will bow down. Some knees will bow under duress. They will bow resentfully and grudgingly and stiffly. Others will bow with adoration, with hearts that are filled with joy and gratitude and praise and admiration for the, the goodness and the love and the greatness of God. But one way or another, the day is coming as sure as this day has come. The day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is our day, 2020. We don't have to wait to live for the honor and glory of Jesus, to, to seek to bring Him praise and, and kneel before Him and worship Him. We don't have to wait. Every day in 2020 can be this day for you and me. For there is no other name on earth given by which people can be saved. For God has chosen to give him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, right now in this room, may every tongue confess your kingdom. God, your power. God, your glory. God. Will you tell them that by how you live every day in 2020? Will you confess with all of your strength and all of your heart, all of your mind and soul right now, Jesus, what matters most to me is not my kingdom, my power, or my glory, but yours. Let's pray to Him. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Jesus, the earth is yours and everything in it. And we are so grateful that you are a merciful, loving king. I mean, what other king has ever laid down his life for his subjects? But that's exactly what you have done. And if you would do that for us, Jesus, surely we can trust that as we live for you, that you will take care of whatever comes our way. That as your word says, if you are for us, who or what can be against us? For you are on your throne. You rule over the heavens and the earth, and we invite you in these moments of worship to rule over our lives. Have your way in us, King Jesus. I pray that every day this coming year when we awaken, 
our thoughts will be on you. That we will set you before us. That we will keep our eyes on you for you are the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And that we can know that as we, as we pray and live every day, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, Lord Jesus. That there, there is a joy, there is a lightness about life, there is a freedom, there is a victory and a power, there is a hope unlike any other. Because this is the way you made us to be, the way you made us to live. So we just commit now to live for your glory. Help us to see any area where you are not king to come to you with repentance, to come to you with humility and faith and confess that and receive your grace and forgiveness that you might be the Lord and King over every part and area of our lives, God. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for being a good, honorable, gracious, mighty, holy, pure, and perfect King. Thank you for representing us before the Father in heaven. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of what you're doing in this world. We look forward to this year as we devote it to you as our King and Lord and Savior. As we pray this together in your name and all who agree said,